Hello, this is William Fink of Christogonia.org. Today is Thursday, March 8th, 2018. This program is being pre-recorded for tomorrow evening when we hope to be on a road. Here we are going to discuss Christianity in the Old Testament. And this evening's program is going to serve as an introduction to the subject. As we commence with subsequent parts of the series, we shall present a critical review of Bertrand Compare's sermon, Christianity in the Old Testament. And because of its length, which is comparatively extraordinary for Compare, it's two or three times longer than most of his sermons, the review will take at least a couple of presentations to complete depending on how many of our own comments we choose to interject. But a lengthy introduction is necessary first, because before we even begin, there are a couple of related subjects that I feel that there is an urgent need to discuss. And as I discuss these things, I am going to prove one bold assertion, that identity Christians as we know them at Christogenia at least, are the original and true Catholics. Even though what we call Christian identity, as we know it, is only about 180 years old. Counting it from the time that it began to develop with British exploration and archaeological discovery within the British Empire. Those discoveries led to the realization of Christian identity. So many people are convinced for so many years that the Old Testament and the New Testament are different books representing different covenants and with different peoples. Nothing could be further from the truth, and as we have said in the past, this belief is absolutely contrary to the words of the books themselves. We shall soon see that the earliest Christian writers, Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, and Lactantius, all agree with us in this regard. When the Old Covenant was broken and the children of Israel were in the process of losing their kingdom and being divorced by Yahweh their God, we read promises of their ultimate reconciliation and of a new covenant between God and those same people. This is recorded in Jeremiah chapter 31 where we read in part, Behold, the days come, saith Yahweh that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Paul of Tarsus cited this at length in Hebrews chapter 8. We also see a similar promise in Ezekiel 
who wrote in relation to the children of Israel taken away into captivity in Ezekiel chapter 37. And he said in part, The word of Yahweh came again unto me, saying, Moreover, thou son of man, take thee one stick and write upon it, for Judah, and for the children of Israel his companions. Then take another stick and write upon it, for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions, and join them one to another into one stick, that they shall become one in thine hand. Notice that nobody else is joined to this stick. Notice that nobody else is promised this covenant. And when the children of thy people shall speak unto thee, saying, Wilt thou not show us what thou meanest by these? Say unto them, Thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel his fellows, and will put them with him, even with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they shall be one in my hand. I will save them a little further on. I will save them out of all their dwelling places wherein they have sinned, and I will cleanse them so that they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, a new covenant. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will place them and multiply them, and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. The tabernacle of God from the birth of Christ is the person of Christ. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yeah, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And the heathen, or more properly, the nations, shall know that I, Yahweh, do sanctify Israel, when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore. Then, after Ezekiel and Jeremiah wrote those things, over 600 years later, when the New Covenant was proclaimed in the Gospel of Christ, we read that his purpose was that I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel, which we see in Matthew chapter 15. And then in Luke chapter 1, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. This is announcing the birth of Christ. And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, the oath to Abraham's seed, to his offspring, to his descendants, 
that he would grant unto us that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Studying the promises to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the subsequent twelve tribes of Israel, we see that they were to become many nations. Go to Genesis chapter 48, Genesis chapter 49. They were to become many nations and to inherit the earth, and to inherit the nations, which at the time those promises were made, describes the other Adamic nations which were descended from Noah and listed in Genesis chapter 10. Unbeknownst to many, the promise to Abraham was made over 1,200 years after the flood of Noah, and all of the old Adamic nations had gone off into paganism. Even Abraham's own forefathers, immediate fathers, were pagans as it explains in the book of Joshua. During those twelve centuries, there is an entire history of the dispersion of our race throughout Mesopotamia, Asia, and Europe, a history which is now lost and can only be pieced together in small part from archaeology, the classics, and inscriptions. But from the Hebrew Exodus to the time of Christ, the promises to Abraham were slowly fulfilled, one century at a time. So the Trojans and Romans and the Danan or Mycenaean Greeks descended from the Israelites of the Exodus, those who took to the sea rather than following Moses. As Diodorus Siculus and other classical poets describe to one degree or another. The Dorians departed from Palestine and came through Crete to conquer the Peloponnesus from their kindred Danans, a narrative we can put together from Homer, Josephus, and the apocryphal one Maccabees, first Maccabees. Later, the Phoenicians, the Israelites of ancient Tyre, settled much of northern Africa and the far points of western Europe and the British Isles. This all happened by the 8th century before Christ. And let me add that the epistles of Paul also help us fill in the blanks the historical blanks in the identity of the Dorian Greeks. This all happened by the 8th century before Christ and the settlement of Carthage. After that, the Germanic tribes began to migrate into Europe from Asia. The Cimmerians, Sake, Scythians, and Galatahi, which are all names for the same people, the Israelites of the Assyrian captivity. The Parthians, who remained behind, were also Israelites and came to dominate Persia and the East for many centuries. All of the details sufficient to establish this narrative as factual history. All of the citations.
are found in the essays in the historical essays at Christogenia.org. So Paul of Tarsus assured the Romans in chapter 4 of his epistle to them that the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law but through the righteousness of faith. And therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace, the grace extended exclusively to the children of Israel described in the opening verses of Jeremiah chapter 31 that the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness that it might be by grace to the end the promise might be sure to all the seed all the seed of Abraham who is the father of us all Paul explained in that chapter that it was according to the promise written in the scripture thus thy offspring shall be many nations aren't made into Abraham's offspring that's contrary to the promises Abraham's offspring became many nations according to the promises and those promises are only to those particular offspring. Then when Paul wrote to the Corinthians who were Dorian Greeks, he told them, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And later in that same chapter, speaking of the pagan idolatry which all of the Israelites of these ancient dispersions had adopted, he said, Behold, Israel after the flesh. After the flesh means according to the flesh. It's a reference to genetic Israel. Behold, Israel after the flesh. Are not they which eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? But I say that the things which the nations sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. Those nations he was discussing were Israel according to the flesh. <coughs> not the Israel by name only in Judea. Again, he said to the Galatians in chapter 4 of his epistle to them, that when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, meaning the dispersed children of Israel, who had one time been under the law. Now there is some language there that is confused and poorly translated by so-called universal churches. But once it is properly understood and properly translated, the racial covenant message of the scriptures becomes even much further unmistakable. Polytarsus was learned in the Greek classics and quoted them frequently, perhaps to the same degree that he was learned in the Hebrew scriptures. So he was not speaking in riddles. Rather, he was bringing the 
gospel of reconciliation, as he himself described his ministry, to the scattered twelve tribes of Israel. And he brought his gospel to Europe because he knew from the classical writings that those tribes were in Europe. This he explained in Acts chapter 26, speaking to Herod Agrippa II, as he defended himself against the accusations of the Jews. And he said, And now I stand and am judged, for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers, unto which promise our twelve tribes, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come. For which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. This was the original Christian message, and it is found in the Gospels, in the Revelation, and all of the epistles of the apostles to one degree or another, James, Peter, Jude, and John, as well as in Paul. And as we have explained, this is also the message found in the liturgy of, the, of Alexandria in the 5th century which is reflected in the original Book of Odes of the famous Codex Alexandrinus. The Book of Odes is a liturgical collection of 15 passages of Scripture, which nearly all have to do with the national relationship of the children of Israel to Yahweh God through Christ. The passages from the New Testament selected for inclusion were all from Luke and related to the fulfillment of the promises of God to the fathers and the deliverance of the gospel to the nations of Israel. This is also the original meaning of the word Catholic, a meaning which was perverted in the early Middle Ages as the Christian churches were united politically and the resulting unification of doctrine was tailored for the convenience of the empire. The original meaning of the word Catholic, as it was used in the earliest Christian writers, is quite different than the perceived meaning which is attributed to the term today. In April of 2012, we gave a presentation of 2 Peter chapter 3 here, and we said the following in regard to this word. Contrary to popular belief, the word Catholic, a word so often misused to describe the seven epistles of the Apostles of Christ, which are buried in the back of our Bibles, the word does not mean universal, in the sense that the later Roman Church asserts that it means. It was never used in that sense by any of the early Christian writers, although they did on occasion use the term. Rather, Catholic comes from two Greek words, kata, meaning down, and halos, meaning whole of which one genitive form is halakos. Halakos means of the whole. An elision occurs when the words are joined. Catahalakos becomes catholicus. The word's immediate parent is a Greek adverb of like meaning, which is kathalu, which means on the whole or in general. But early Christians used the term 
to describe the derivation of their faith and not its application. They use the term to signify that they received the whole faith, that they received the faith down whole or completely. This distinguished the original Orthodox Christians from the Jews who rejected the gospel and it also distinguished them from sects such as the followers of Marcion and some of the more or less Christian Gnostics who rejected the Old Testament. An original Catholic was one who accepted the entire scripture both Old and New Testaments, although there was never a single official canon that determined exactly what that scripture was composed of in each testament. Rather, they called their faith Catholic, with a small c, <coughs> because they accepted Moses, the writings, the prophets, and the gospel. Therefore, if a Christian claims to be a New Testament Christian, he is instead only relinquishing the truth in exchange for the lies of the Jews. Or Marcion. The term Catholic Epistles is of course not found in Scripture itself. But because it is so but because it is used so frequently today, people often think that they are called Catholic epistles because they were general, because they were written to everyone, whereas Paul's epistles were written to particular Christian assemblies or individuals. That is certainly not true that the Catholic epistles were written in general. As Paul professed that his ministry was to the twelve tribes, the epistle of James was written to the twelve tribes scattered abroad, to specific individuals. The historian Flavius Joseph, I'm sorry, Flavius Josephus, records the murder of that same James to have happened around 61 or 62 AD, eight or nine years before the destruction of Jerusalem, in Antiquities Book 20, where he refers to him as the brother of Jesus who was called Christ. On close inspection, it can be established that both of the epistles of Peter were written to Christian assemblies of Greeks, Romans, and Galatians, which Paul had established in Anatolia. John, in his last days in Ephesus, wrote his last two epistles to particular individuals, and the first to an audience with which he was evidently quite familiar and quite fond of. Even Jude wrote his epistle in an exhortation to his readers, 
that they should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints in reference to the faith of the Old Testament of which he subsequently speaks. So if the so-called Catholic epistles were written to particular people or groups, then it is apparent that the term Catholic must have a meaning other than universal as it is commonly interpreted because none of these epistles are universal. Furthermore, the term Catholic was not only applied to these epistles but also to the faith and to the Gospels by the early Christian writers. They discussed Catholic faith and Catholic Gospels as well as Catholic epistles. Do not misinterpret me. The early Christian writers were not ideal and they did not always agree among themselves. For example, Justin Martyr did not even seem to know the epistles of Paul of Tarsus. And, if the manuscripts are not adulterated, it is apparent that he taught nearly the same sort of replacement theology that the later Roman Catholic Church teaches. But here we endeavor only to demonstrate the meaning of the word Catholic. So we shall give some lengthy examples from early Christian writers which substantiate our perception of the meaning of the word. Irenaeus was a Greek Christian writer of the 2nd century AD living in Lugdunum in Gaul or what we now know as Lyon in France. In his Against Heresies, Book 3, Chapter 11, we see one of the earliest terms one of the earliest uses of the term Catholic by a Christian writer. This was written perhaps around 150 years before the Council of Nicaea. This portion of his work is part of a continuing defense of the Gospels, and not only in the authority of their content, but also in their number and their provenance. By provenance I mean the proof of their origins. So in paragraph 8 of the chapter, in an obscure part of his argument discussing the perfection of the Word of God, he says the following in part where he is speaking of Christ. Afterwards, being made man for us, he sent the gift of the celestial spirit over all the earth, protecting us with his wings. Such then, as was the course followed by the Son of God, so was also the form of the living creatures. Such as was the form of the living creatures, so was also the character of the gospel. He refers to the living creatures in the prophecy of Ezekiel and possibly also in the Revelation. For the living creatures are quadriform, and the gospel is quadriform, as is also the course followed by the law by the Lord, 
I'm sorry, by the Lord. And let me say that the quadriform form is also found in the arrangements of the tribe of tribes of Israel, both in the books of Numbers and Deuteronomy around the tabernacle in the wilderness and in the revelation of Christ in the city of God, if we want to extend Irenaeus's allegory. It is very simple to do that in both Old and New Testaments. So Irenaeus continues and he says, For this reason were four principal covenants given to the human race. Now that word principal is the Greek word, and this is from the original, it's not from me. If you search out Irenaeus and his against heresies and this portion of the Anti-Nicene Fathers. This is in the original text of the translation by Robertson Donaldson. After the word principle, they had the word Catholicae, or I would pronounce it Catholicahi, and they have it in parentheses informing us that in the Greek of Irenaeus that word principle is the word Catholic Catholicahi it's actually a plural form and they translated that as principle Irenaeus says for this reason there were four principle or Catholic covenants given to the human race one prior to the deluge under Adam the second, that after the deluge under Noah. The third, the giving of the law under Moses. The fourth, that which renovates man and sums up all things in itself by means of the gospel, raising and bearing men upon heavenly kingdom. And that refers, of course, to the covenant with Christ. There are other covenants in Scripture, of course, but Irenaeus is identifying these covenants with Adam, with Noah, with Moses, and with Christ as the Catholic covenants, the principal covenants, as it's translated. It is beyond the scope of our purpose here to give a commentary on the Greek of Irenaeus in relation to his worldview, even if we would like to do that. However, here we see this word, Catholicahi, which is a plural form of Catholicae, and it is translated as principle. Now, we would not necessarily translate it in that same manner. However, it is clear from this translation that the word is an adjective modifying the noun for covenants, and it is feminine in form because the Greek noun for covenant which is typically diatheke, is naturally feminine in its grammatical form. When an adjective is applied to a noun in the Greek language, the adjective is always written in the same grammatical, grammatical form and number as the noun. So the noun being a feminine noun, and plural in this case, we see an adjective Catholicae written in the feminine plural. 
The word Catholic is the nominative feminine singular form of Catholicus. So by Irenaeus, according to Irenaeus, all of the covenants of Yahweh God in both the Old and New Testaments were considered to be Catholic, we would agree, and only a Jew or a Papist who both seek to pervert the scripture may dispute with that assessment. Clement of Alexandria was born about 20 years after Irenaeus and followed him in death by about 13 years in 215 AD. From his work titled The Stromata or Miscellanies from Book 7, Chapter 17, The Tradition of the Church Prior to that of the heresies, he wrote, and, and he's writing about the church from the time before all of the heresies sprang up, and many heresies sprang up in the early 2nd century. We had the Montanists, and, and the Marcionites, and, and the Gnostics, and I believe that Gnosticism probably started by the time of Philo of Alexandria, who seems to be a proto-Gnostic. And Clement of Alexandria himself was a Gnostic. He was a Christian Gnostic, and we'll see that later. So he was part of one of the heresies, but of course he didn't count his own beliefs as a heresy. And if you trace the doctrines of the various church fathers you will find that the strongest line, uh, in my opinion, and, and I'm fairly certain I could easily establish this, the strongest line of doctrine that was adopted by the later Roman Catholic Church from the 4th through the 6th centuries, the strongest line of doctrine that is found in the later, later Roman Catholic Church comes through Clement of Alexandria, Origen and Eusebius in that order. Eusebius was a a fan of Clement and Origen, and Origen was a pupil of Clement, a follower of Clement of Alexandria, and that's all a digression. Clement of Alexandria was born about 158 AD, and he died in 215 AD. And from his work titled The Stromata, or Miscellanies, Book 7, Chapter 17, he wrote, Therefore, in substance and idea, in origin, in preeminence, we say that the ancient and Catholic Church, and that's written by, with large capital C's in our translation, by Robertson Donaldson, but it should really be in small c's. The ancient and Catholic Church is alone, collecting as it does into the unity of the one faith <clears throat> which results from the peculiar testaments, in the plural, or rather the one testament in different times by the will of the one God through one Lord those already ordained whom God predestinated knowing before the foundation of the world that they would be righteous so 
Before 215 AD, there were a collection of heresies, but the Catholic Church, a phrase we should spell with without capital letters, accepted both Old and New Testaments. Notice that Clement wrote, Clement wrote Ancient and Catholic Church, whereby he seems to imply that the Old Testament Church is the same as the New Testament Church, as Christ and the Apostles themselves had also professed. So he also accounted those two Testaments as one and not two, merely distinguishing them by the times in which they were put into effect for those whom God had both ordained and predestinated. That is indeed the faith which was handed down by the apostles as we have already described. The faith which was once delivered to the saints where Jude refers to Old Testament saints. Here is a passage from a Christian writer nearly as old as Irenaeus and Clement. Tertullian was born in 160 AD, ten years after Clement. He lived until 240 AD. This is from his Five Books Against Marcion. Marcion's heresy was a significant heresy, and early Christian writers expended much time addressing Marcion's heresy. Irenaeus did it, Clement did it, Tertullian did it. Irenaeus also spent much time addressing the faults of the Gnostics, the heresies of the Gnostics. And we know most about the Gnostics from the writings of Irenaeus until the f fake books, <laughs> fake gospels of the Gnostics were discovered at Nag Hammadi about a century ago. They were produced by the Gnostics. <clears throat> this is from chapter 5 of the Five Books Against Marcion, book 4. And it's subtitled, and it's subtitled by the editors. It's the editors, the translators, that write these subtitles for these chapters. They're not from the original, so far as I have ever seen. They're, um basically summaries of what's in each chapter. And this one says, by the rule of antiquity, the Catholic Gospels, and we see that phrase, Catholic Gospels, are found to be true, including the real St. Luke's. And that's because Marcion basically plagiarized and attributed his own Gospel to St. Luke. He, he mutilated, he mutilated it. And it goes on to say that here, including the real St. Luke's, Marcion's is only a mutilated edition. The heretic's weakness and inconsistency in ignoring the other Gospels, and the heretic is, of course, Marcion. And Tertullian writes, on the whole, then, if that is evidently more true, which is earlier, if that is earlier, which is from the very beginning, 
If that is from the beginning, which has the apostles for its authors, then it will certainly be quite as evident that that comes down from the apostles, which has been kept as a sacred deposit in the churches of the apostles. And before we, con before we continue, let us explain right here that Tertullian refers to what is considered Catholic at his time. The Catholic Gospels, the Catholic Epistles, are the things which early Christians believed were handed down to them by the Apostles themselves. That's what Catholic meant. Down whole. Down completely. To receive the complete faith directly from the Apostles. And they believed they received the Old Testament, the New Testament, and all of its epistles from the Apostles. From the Apostles. Now, some early Christians had books that others didn't have. Esther. Esther was accepted in the West, but it was never accepted in the East. It's basically a Jewish romantic novel. The Eastern churches did not accept it. The Book of Odes, as we've mentioned, was a Christian liturgy that was only found in Alexandria because it was something that they created by taking passages out of Scripture. The pastor Hermas, the pastor Hermas, we will, the shepherd it's often called, the shepherd of Hermas, we will get to that one at the end of this presentation. The shepherd of Hermas was found in the Codex Sinaiticus and in the Codex Claromontanus, and it was counted as a New Testament book by the Christian assemblies that maintained those codices. But it's not found in the Codex Vaticanus or the Codex Alexandrinus. There were apocryphal books that one Christian assembly accepted and another didn't. And some of those books are apocryphal today. Let us continue with Tertullian, who basically just defined the word Catholic for us. And he says, let us see what milk the Corinthians drank from Paul. To what rule of faith the Galatians were brought for correction. What the Philippians, the Thessalonians, the Ephesians read by it. What utterance also the Romans give, so very near to the apostles, to whom Peter and Paul conjointly bequeathed the gospel, even sealed with their own blood. And Tertullian believed that both Peter and Paul were executed in Rome. We have also St. John's foster churches. He's referring to the seven churches listed, which received messages in the Revelation. For although Marcion rejects his apocalypse, the order of the bishops thereof, when traced up to their origin, will yet rest on John as their author. In the same manner is recognized the excellent source of the other churches.
I say therefore, and most of those came from Paul, I say therefore that in them, and not simply such of them as were founded by apostles, but in all those which are united with them in the fellowship of the mystery of the gospel of Christ, that gospel of Luke, which we are defending with all of our might, has stood its ground from its very first publication, whereas Marcion's gospel, Marcion's butchered version of Luke, is not known to most people, and to none whatever is it known without being at the same time condemned. It too, of course, has its churches, but especially its own, as late as they are spurious, and should you want to know their original, you will more easily discover apostasy in it than apostolicity. And the two words are very similar in Greek. With Marcion, forsooth as their founder, or someone of Marcion's swarm, even wasps make combs. So also these Marcionites make churches. Now we see how significant this heresy was, that Marcion's version of Luke's Gospel was not Catholic, because it was known and readily obvious that it was not handed down from the Apostles. But the original Luke, which we know today, that was considered Catholic because the churches recognized that that was the version handed down from the Apostles. So Tertullian says, even wasps make combs, so also these Marcionites make churches. The same authority of the apostolic churches will afford evidence to the other Gospels also, which we possess equally through their means and according to their usage. I mean the Gospels of John and Matthew. While that which Mark published, and we've also used this as evidence in our presentation of Mark, while that which Mark published may be affirmed to be Peter's, whose interpreter Mark was. For even Luke's form of the gospel, men usually ascribe to Paul, and it may well seem that the works which disciples publish belong to their masters. Well then, Marcion ought to be called to a strict account concerning these other gospels also, and by saying masters there, I am certain that Tertullian meant teachers. For having omitted them, and insisted in preference on Luke, as if they too had not free course in the churches, as well as Luke's gospel, from the beginning. Nay, it is even more credible that they existed from the very beginning, for being the work of the apostles, they were prior and coeval in origin with the churches themselves. Coeval, C-O-E-V-A-L, meaning arising at the same time. <clears throat> Coequal in origin. But how comes it to pass, if the apostles published nothing, that their disciples were more forward in such a work, for they could not have been disciples without any instruction from their masters. Tertullian using logic to prove that the Gospels came from the original apostles that they say they came from. If then it be evident that these Gospels also were current in the churches, why did Marcion not, why did not Marcion touch them, either to amend them if they were adulterated or to acknowledge them if they were uncorrupt? And I'll tell you why. Tertullian doesn't answer this. Luke's gospel has more 
identity in it than any of the other three Gospels. Much more. Tertullian continues and says, For it is but natural that they who were perverting the Gospel should be more solicitous about the perversion of those things whose authority they knew to be more generally received. Even the false apostles were so-called on this very account because they imitated the apostles by means of their falsification. In as far, then, as he might have amended what there was to amend if it was found corrupt, insofar did he first imply that all was free from corruption which he did not think required amendment. In short, he simply amended what he thought was corrupt, referring to Marcion, though indeed not even this justly because it was not really corrupt. For if the Gospels of the Apostles have come down to us in their integrity, while Luke's, which is received among us, so far accords with their rule as to be on a par with them in permanency of reception in the churches, it clearly follows that Luke's Gospel also has come down to us in like integrity until the sacrilegious treatment of Marcion. In short, when Marcion laid hands on it, it then became diverse and hostile to the Gospels of the Apostles. I will therefore advise his followers that either they change these Gospels, meaning Tertullian is challenging them to corrupt the other three Gospels because they had corrupted Luke's, however late to do so, into a conformity with their own. Tertullian is claiming that when they corrupted Luke's Gospel, they brought it out of agreement with the other Gospels whereby they may seem to be in agreement with the apostolic writings, for they are daily retouching their work, as daily they are convicted by us, meaning that the Catholics, the small c Catholics, the original Christians, were constantly having to defend Christianity against the corruptions of the Marcionites who were spreading falsely written gospels or else that they blush for their master, Marcion himself, who stands self-condemned either way, when once the hands on the truth of the gospel, conscience smitten, or again subverts it by shameless tampering, when once he hands on the truth of, God, of the gospel, conscience smitten, that is the way it is in the translation. It's a little difficult to read. It, it doesn't quite have the correct grammar. Tertullian continues, Such are the summary arguments which we use when we take up arms against heretics for the faith of the gospel, maintaining both that order of periods, which rules that at a late date is the mark of forgers, and that authority of churches which lends support to the tradition of the apostles. Because truth must needs precede the forgery and proceed straight from those by whom it has been handed on. Again, the language is a little difficult. This Marcion, whom Tertullian assails, was a Christian of the Church of Rome who departed from the faith by rejecting the Old Testament and the epistles of Paul completely and then butchering references to the Old Testament in Luke so as to support his heresy. 
So the term Catholic in relation to the scriptures was used to refer to what Tertullian describes, the writings which were handed down from the apostles themselves and from their original students, Luke and Mark, as opposed to the spurious works which were being offered by heretics. With this we also see that heretics were indeed corrupting the Christian scriptures as early as the second century after Christ. As Tertullian proceeds from this point, chapter 6 of the book discusses Marcion's object in adulterating the gospel, and in chapter 7 he explains in further detail Marcion's rejection of portions of Luke's gospel. <coughs> we won't take the time to offer all of those details. What follows is also from Tertullian, from another and similar book titled The Prescription Against Heretics, chapter 30, and this is summarized. Comparative Lateness of Heresies, Marcion's Heresy, Some Personal Facts About Him, The Heresy of Apelles, The Character of This Man, and then a list of other heretics, Philumene, Valentinus, Nigidius, and Hermogenes. And Tertullian writes, Where was Marcion then, that shipmaster of Pontus? Pontus was his original home when he was a studying Christian. He was in the church at Rome. The zealous student of Stoicism, and many of these early Christians had formerly been pagans. Some of them were Stoics, some of them were Epicureans, some of them were Gnostics, some of them belonged to some other Greek pagan. Some of them were followers of Plato or Socrates. Where was Valentinus then? The disciple of Platonism. For it is evident that those men lived not so long ago, in the reign of Antoninus for the most part, and that would be 138 to 161 AD. So we can date Marcion and some of these other heretics from some of these writings. And that they were at first believers in the doctrine of the Catholic Church, in the Church of Rome, under the Episcopate of the Blessed Eleutherus, until on account of their ever-restless curiosity, with which they even infected the brethren, they were more than once expelled. Marcion indeed went with the 200 sesterces, Roman currency, with which he had brought into the church, and when banished at last to a permanent excommunication, they scattered abroad the poisons of their doctrines. Afterwards, it is true, Marcion professed repentance and agreed to the conditions granted to him, that he should receive reconciliation if he restored to the church all of the others whom he had been training for perdition. He was prevented, however, by death. It was indeed necessary that there should be heresies, and that basically confirms my own translation of Paul's admonition in 1 Corinthians that there must be heresies. It was indeed necessary that there should be heresies, and yet it does not follow from that necessity that heresies are a good thing, and we would certainly agree, as if it has not been necessary also that there should be evil, Tertullian making very good logic here.
It was even unnecessary that the Lord should be, I'm sorry, it was even necessary that the Lord should be betrayed. But woe to the traitor, so that no man from this may defend heresies. If we must likewise touch the descent of Apelles, he is far from being one of the old school, like his instructor and molder, Marcion. In other words, Apelles was new to Christianity when he was corrupted by Marcion, where Marcion was originally an old school, an original Catholic Christian. He rather forsook the continents of Marcion by resorting to the company of a woman and withdrew to Alexandria, out of sight of his most abstemious master. Returning therefrom, after some years, unimproved, except that he was no longer a Marcionite, he claved to another woman, the maiden Philumene, whom we have already mentioned, who herself afterwards became an enormous prostitute, having been imposed on by her vigorous spirit he meaning apelles he committed to writing the revelations which he had learned of her persons are still living who remember them but their own actual disciples and successors who cannot therefore deny the lateness of their date so we see in modern christianity women like ellen g white they're nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun. We've had this problem for thousands of years where men will be led astray by a woman that they think is a prophetess. Other people, even claiming to be identity Christians, think that the Satan-denying Gerda Koch is a prophetess. So this problem is pretty common. Men infatuated with women women that are really just sluts and whores like Philomene try to make prophetesses out of them and elevate them. It's an old problem. Continuing with Tertullian, but in fact by their own works they are convicted even as the Lord said. You know them by their fruits. For since Marcion separated the Old Testament I'm sorry, for as Marcion separated the New Testament from the Old, he is necessarily subsequent to that which he separated, inasmuch as it was only in his power to separate what was previously united. So we see Tertullian's understanding of the two Testaments, that they are one book, that they are one and the same. That's the original meaning of the word Catholic. Having then been united previous to its separation, the fact of its separation, subsequent separation proves the subsequence also of the man who effected the separation. Tertullian condemning Marcion for separating the two testaments. So we see that most modern Christians are basically Marcionites. And most of these fools who consider themselves traditional Christians, but think that the Old Testament belongs to the Jews, they are also Marcionites. Tertullian says, 
In like manner, Valentinus, by his different expositions and acknowledged emendations, makes these changes on the express ground of previous faultiness, and therefore demonstrates the differences, the difference of the documents. These corruptors of the truth we mention as being more notorious and more public than others. There is, however, a certain man named Nigidius, and Hermogenes, and several others, who will pursue the course of perverting the ways of the Lord. Let them show me by what authority they come. If it be some other god they preach, how comes it that they employ the things and the writings and the names of that god against whom they preach? If it be the same god, why treat him in some other way? Let them prove themselves to be new apostles. Let them maintain that Christ has come down a second time, taught in person a second time, has been twice crucified, twice dead, twice raised. For thus has the apostle described the ordered events in the life of Christ. For thus too is he accustomed to make his apostles, to give them, that is, power besides of working the same miracles which he worked himself. I would therefore have their mighty deeds also brought forward, Tertullian challenging these false apostles, except that I allow their mightiest deed to be that by which they perversely vie with the apostles. For whilst they used to raise men to life from the dead, these consign men to death from their living state. Tertullian asserting the fact that the true apostles of Christ were able to raise men from the dead, the false apostles kill living men. Today, most Christians, most Christians do seek to separate the New Testament from the Old. And they think that the Testaments represent covenants made with two different groups of people. But both of the Testaments themselves inform us that each of the covenants are made with the same group of people. The twelve tribes of Israel. Every reference to the world, which is not the planet, every reference to all men, which only includes men of the same race within that world, must be understood within this context. By now it should be clear that the original Catholic is one of those people to whom the apostles endeavored to bring the gospel, one of the ancient people of the twelve tribes of Israel, who accepted the faith of Christ from both testaments, who accepted the entire body of the scriptures handed down by the apostles, the writings of both Old Testament and New Testament, and that each testament pertained to no other people than themselves. These people called themselves, their faith, and their scriptures Catholic because they esteemed all of these things to represent the faith handed down by the apostles. In contradistinction to the heresies which cut out either one testament or the other and which furthermore cut out parts of each testament in order to accommodate the cutting out of the other. So it was not enough for someone such as Marcion to dispense with the Old Testament. He and his followers had realized that much of the New Testament was directly related to the Old, 
so they had to cut those parts out as well. The modern denominational churches are actually closer to Marcion today than they are to the Apostles of Christ. All of you silly-assed so-called traditional Christians, you're not traditional Christians. Not at all. Traditional Christianity was corrupted after the time of Tertullian, after the time of Clement. Tertullian and Clement, with their own personal heresies, they contributed to the corruption of traditional Christianity in different ways. But here we see their attitude, with all their mistakes, here we see their attitude towards the scriptures. That they are one and the same testament, and according to Clement, one and the same covenant. And according to Irenaeus, receiving both testaments, old and new, as applying to Christians, that's Catholic. If you believe anything different, you're not an original Catholic. From the same work by Tertullian, I pray this isn't too tedious, The Prescription Against Heretics, Chapter 38, Harmony of the Church and the Scriptures. Heretics have tampered with the Scriptures and mutilated and altered them. Catholics never change the Scriptures, which always testify for them. And he writes, Where diversity of doctrine is found there, then must the corruption both of the scriptures and the expositions thereof be regarded as existing. On those whose purpose it was to teach differently lay the necessity of differently arranging the instruments of doctrine. They could not possibly have affected their diversity of teaching in any other way than by having a difference in the means whereby they taught. As in their case, corruption in doctrine could not possibly have succeeded without a corruption also of its instruments. So to ourselves also, integrity of doctrine could not have, been, could not have accrued, could not have piled up. Without integrity in those means by which doctrine is managed. Now, what is there in our scriptures which is contrary to us? What of our own have we introduced that we should have to take it away again or else add to it or alter it in order to restore it, restore to it its natural soundness, anything which is contrary to it and contained in the scriptures? What we ourselves that also the scriptures are and have been from the beginning. Of them we have our being before there was any other way, before they were interpolated by you, referring to the people he's criticizing. Now, inasmuch as all interpolation must be believed to be a later process, for the express reason that it proceeds from rivalry which is never in any case previous to nor home-born with that which it emulates. It is as incredible to every man of sense that we should seem to have introduced any corrupt text into the scriptures, existing as we have been from the very first and being the first, as it is that they have not in fact introduced it, who are both later in date 
and opposed to the scriptures Tertullian is claiming to be of the first Christians of the original Christians who accepted the entire scriptures down from the Apostles Old Testament New Testament epistles of Paul everything that the first Christian assemblies had collected for their own instruction and doctrine Tertullian goes on to, to say that one man perverts the scriptures with his hand another their meaning by his exposition for although Valentinus the second the he Valentinus was an early second century Roman Gnostic although Valentinus seems to use the entire volume meaning using the entire scriptures he has nonetheless laid violent hands on the truth with a more cunning mind and skill than Marcion Marcion expressly and openly used the knife not the pen since he made such an excision of the scriptures as suited his own subject matter Valentinus however abstained from such excision because he did not invent scriptures to square with his own subject matter matter but adapted his matter to the scriptures and yet he took away more and added more by removing the proper meaning of every particular word and adding fantastic arrangements of things which have no real existence and of course it's a shame that the early Christian writers didn't understand that they were doing the same thing by imagining a father to simply be a philosophical predecessor or by imagining seed to be spiritual spiritual sperm and those things are fantastic and have no real existence a father is an ancestor and seed are children in scripture now concluding our exhibition from the early Christian writers we have one more passage from the third century Christian writer Lactantius he was not born until all of the other writers mentioned here had died in 250 AD late in his life he was an advisor to the Emperor Constantine I or Constantine the Great and he died in 325 AD this is from the Divine Institutes book 4 of true wisdom and religion and Lactantius writes and this isn't too long a passage but some not sufficiently instructed in heavenly learning when they were unable to reply to the accusers of the truth who objected that it is either impossible or inconsistent that God should be shut up in the womb of a woman and that the majesty of heaven could not be reduced to such weakness as to become an object of contempt and derision a reproach and a mockery to men speaking of Christ of course lastly that he should endure even tortures and be affixed to the accursed cross and when they could defend and refute all these things neither by talent nor by learning for they did not thoroughly perceive their force and meaning they were perverted from the right path and corrupted the sacred ways so that they composed for themselves a new doctrine without any root and stability but some enticed by the prediction of false prophets concerning whom both the true prophets and he himself had foretold fell away from the knowledge of God and left 
the true tradition. But all of these, ensnared by frauds of demons, which they ought to have foreseen and guarded against, by their careless carelessness lost the name and worship of God. For when they are called Phrygians, that's a, that's a, a reference to the sect of the Montanists, who were later called Phrygians because Montanus spread his was a Phrygian and spread his heresy in Phrygia. For when they are called Phrygians or Novarians or Valentinians or Marcionites or Anthropians, maybe that's humanists, or Arians, or by any other name, they have ceased to be Christians who have lost the name of Christ and assumed human and external names. Therefore, it is the Catholic Church alone which retains true worship. Now we should know what Catholic means. To accept the entirety of the scriptures as they apply to ourselves, if indeed we are of those nations of that original world to which the original apostles endeavored to present the scriptures of all of the sects of all of the sects of Christians today only one sect is at least in its ideal form exclusively comprised of people from those nations to which the apostles originally sought to bring the gospel of Christ only one sect believes as the apostles and Christ himself had professed, that they and their kinsmen are the recipients of the promises found in both the Old and the New Covenants. Only one sect accepts both Testaments as applying to themselves, but at different times, as Clement had informed us. Only one sect believes in the fulfillment of the promises to the fathers in Christ. As those promises were originally stated and as the apostles themselves had explained. That sect is Christian identity. We are the true and original Catholics. As the term Catholic was originally used by Irenaeus, by Clement of Alexandria, by Tertullian, by Lactantius, and by others as well, which we can easily elucidate from the writings of Justin Martyr and others, although we excluded Justin here. Since we excluded Justin Martyr here this evening, since he seemed to be nearly, he seemed to be totally ignorant of the epistles of Paul. He considered himself a Catholic. He seemed to be totally ignorant of certain certain of the activities of the book of Acts, if not all of them. Justin Martyr seemed to be ignorant of the book of Acts. Or at least of many of the events recorded in it. Because he made arguments that the book of in, in in some of his writings that the book of Acts would have helped him to prove, but he didn't mention the book of Acts in his arguments. If you had scripture to help you support an argument, you certainly it's certainly 
expedient for you to quote it and he didn't so and and Justin Moder did one thing right Justin Moder counted Baptists among the heretics here we will here we will make an assertion and we have already made it that the world is not the planet and we want to quantify that statement we're going to use two witnesses for that there are statements throughout the early Christian writers that refer to the whole world for instance Irenaeus in his against heresies book 1 chapter 9 he makes the remark that the universal church moreover throughout the whole world has received this tradition from the Apostles now we have that word universal and that's unfortunate because it belongs to the translators and not necessarily to Irenaeus who didn't use the word universal right he was writing in Greek if we examine the Greek manuscripts the word Catholicus was translated as universal here however we have already demonstrated that such was not its meaning the corresponding Latin phrase in Irenaeus in the Latin copies of Irenaeus because I couldn't find a Greek copy is Ecclesia Autem Omni, Omnis per Universum Orbem Hanc accepted ab apostolis traditionum. Now, let me break that down. Ecclesia, at the beginning of that, Ecclesia atem omnis. That phrase, that word Ecclesia, is church as it's typically translated. Ecclesia. Autem Omnis is the whole assembly. Universal applies to church. Ecclesia Autem Omnis. Ecclesia does not apply to the word church. Now we have a preposition, per, which could mean throughout. Universum Orbem. Ecclesia autem omnis per universum orbem. Hanc accepted ab apostolis traditionum. So it's important to see that universum in Latin doesn't apply to ecclesia, which is church. Ecclesia autem omnis. The word omnis means all. And that applies to the word ecclesia. But then we have the preposition per. An adjective is ne a preposition is never put between a noun and its adjective. You're going to say throw the blue ball to me. You're not going to say throw the blue to ball me. That doesn't make any damn sense. That's sticking a preposition in between the the, the, the adjective and a noun. Throw the blue to me throw the blue to ball me no 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 I'm sorry that's totally confusing Ecclesia autem omnis noun is a preposition per universum orbum the whole assembly throughout the entire world is what he's saying the whole assembly now if we wanted to translate universum as universal the whole assembly throughout the universal world 
okay. The whole assembly throughout the entire world received from this, Hank accepted Ab, received from this, I'm sorry, received this from, Ab is from, Hank accepted, received this, Ab from, Apostolic Traditionum, Apostolic Tradition. The whole assembly throughout the entire world. Now the translators unfortunately wrote the universal church instead of the whole assembly. But literally the words omnis and, and ecclesia are the whole assembly. Not the universal church. And that word universal is omnis. It means all. It's not universum. Which here is an adjective modifying the word orbum which is world. So it's the world that's universal, perhaps, but it's not the church that's universal. The translators suck because they translate things in a manner which upholds Catholic tradition. They do it all the time. This translation is deceptive. Universum is an adjective modifying orbem, or world, but not ecclesia, or church. Literally, it should say, in regard to what it preceded, that the whole assembly throughout the entire world received this from apostolic tradition. This one example, among many, helps to establish that the world of Irenaeus was not the entire planet, because at his time, Christians were not spread over the planet. Not at all. The world of Irenaeus was the Roman world and not the entire planet. Here we will cite a much later source. We're going to cite Martin Luther. In our estimation, poor Martin Luther was a man conflicted with himself because having learned his Christianity from Jewish commentators, such as Paul of Burgos and Nicholas of Lyra, he had many incorrupt Jewish, incorrect Jewish concepts of scripture. Luther admitted in his own work that he was influenced by these men, and he cited them frequently. But nevertheless, to Luther, the whole world was not the entire planet. This is evident where Luther mentions the world in chapter 13 of On the Jews and Their Lies. There he wrote, It is a great, extraordinary, and wonderful thing that the Gentiles in all the world accepted without sword or coercion, with no temporal benefits accruing to them, gladly and freely, a poor man of the Jews, and we don't believe that, so we'll get to that in a moment, as the true Messiah, one whom his own people had crucified, condemned, cursed, and persecuted without end. Now, Martin Luther evidently confused Judeans with Jews because that was the way his Jewish masters had taught him. Now we can certainly establish with many proofs from history and scripture that Christ was a Judean, but he was certainly not a Jew, not as we know the term Jew or the people it represents. His sheep heard his voice and they followed him. 
The Edomites, Canaanites, and other bastards rejected him because they, who retained the label of Jew to this very day, are not his sheep as he had told them. Notice, however, that Luther said that the Gentiles in all the world accepted Christ using the past tense. At Luther's time, the Indians, the Asians, the Arabs, the Turks, and others were rejecting Christ, were never Christian, while Roman Catholicism, which Luther rejected as Christianity, was being forced on the squat monsters of the Americas by the sword in a manner which Luther also rejected. Therefore, to Luther, Christian Europe alone represented the Gentiles in all the world. Christian Europe represented all the world. And there was no need to add to that. Luther constantly wrote about non-Christian peoples in other parts of the planet. But they weren't part of his world. Again, Luther wrote in that same chapter concerning early Christian martyrs. Chapter 13 on the Jews and their lies. They did and suffered so much for his sake and forsook all idolatry just so that they might live with him eternally. This has been going on now for 1,500 years. The people that die in the wars against the Turks and the Arabs in Luther's time, he considered Christian martyrs. No worship of a false god ever endured so long, meaning that Christ had to be true. Nor did all the world, all the world, suffer so much because of it, or cling so firmly to it. At this time, Christians simply weren't dying in China. I suppose, and I suppose, Luther says, one of the strongest proofs is found in the fact that no other god ever withstood such hard opposition as the Messiah, against whom alone all other Gods and peoples have raged, and against whom they all acted in concert, no matter how varied they were or how they otherwise disagreed. Luther talking about the alien assaults on Christendom made by Arabs and Turks and Mongols and, and all these other races. They were not part of Luther's world. Luther again means to refer to the Christian society alone as all the world, compared to other gods and peoples. This would be the same white Adamic world which the apostles also perceived in places such as Luke chapter 2, Acts chapter 17 verse 6, Acts chapter 19 verse 27, and elsewhere. So according to Luther, other gods and people are not a part of the world which was to receive the gospel. According to Luther, all the world already had the gospel. 
Perhaps Luther's universalism, which is perceived in other statements, is a reflection of his own confusion in these matters. Or perhaps he never intended certain statements to be understood in the general way in which they are understood today. However, it is clear that Luther's theology in his later life is much different than what he believed which is reflected in his writings as a younger man, especially in relation to the Jews. Luther's theology continued to develop throughout his life, even though some of it came from Jews and was therefore wrong. Of all the Christian denominations and sects of today, only identity Christians understand the concept of the world in the manner in which the early Christian writers, all the way up to the time of Martin Luther, had understood it. Now I will speak a little about an insignificant but horrible and dangerous part of the rest of the planet. I will speak a little about niggers. I believe that I believe, and this is only an opinion, that the word nigger originated from nekar, which is a Hebrew term for a racial stranger. And just like the Latin term afer for Africa came from the Hebrew word ophir, O P H I R, so did the Latin term nigger. And if you're offended by me saying nigger, that's just tough. It's a Latin word, and it means black. So did the Latin term nigger come from the Hebrew word nekar, describing an alien. There is another Hebrew word, balag. Strong's number 1082. From which I believe we get the English words plague and black, with which concepts such as plague and evil are associated. Niggers are certainly aliens and they are certainly a plague. First I will offer something I wrote a while ago from the citing from the Greek historian Theodore Siculus. A couple of years ago, I wrote the following at Christogenia. In spite of the Hollywood propaganda, the ancient Greeks and Romans hardly knew the African Negro, except perhaps as a passing spectacle in the desert, or by the surviving population of mixed races in certain places in Egypt. One literary example which demonstrates the truth of this assertion is found in the Library of History, in Book 3 by the ancient Greek historian Diodorus Siculus, whose work was published around 36 BC. After describing the cultured people of Ethiopia, who were originally not black and who had many things in common with the rest of the civilized world, Diodorus says in Book 3, Chapter 8, but there are also a great many other tribes of the Ethiopians, some of them dwelling in the land lying on both banks of the Nile and on the islands in the river, others inhabiting the neighboring country of Arabia, and still others residing in the interior of Libya, 
meaning the interior of Western Africa. The majority of them, and especially those who dwell along the river, are black in color and have flat noses and woolly hair. As for their spirit, they are entirely savage and display the nature of a wild beast. Not so much, however, in their temper as in their ways of living. For they are squalid all over their bodies. They keep their nails very long like the wild beasts and are as far removed as possible from human kindness to one another. And speaking as they do with a shrill voice and cultivating none of the practices of civilized life as these are found among the rest of mankind, they present a striking contrast when considered in the light of our own customs. That's what Diodorus Siculus felt about niggers. What Diodorus described sounds exactly like what is seen today in the streets of Atlanta. New Orleans, Memphis, Philadelphia, Cleveland, Baltimore, Detroit, and most other American cities on a regular basis. Now there are people who imagine themselves to be Christians, especially those traditional so-called orthodox types, who would be offended by this citation from Diodor Siculus, and who may imagine that Jesus cleanses niggers too. Nothing is further from the truth, and I will establish that from some of the earliest Christian writings. Many years ago, I read a work titled The Pastor, or The Shepherd of Hermas. Now, I do not think that at that time, perhaps 1997 or 1998, I was far enough along in my studies to understand it fully, and perhaps it is time to read it all again. But I will indeed cite a passage from it here. The book is a work from as early as the late first century, but if, oh, if, if it is younger, or, or later I should say, it is not much before the middle of the second century, as Irenaeus knew it and he included it in his canon. He thought it was directly from the apostles. It is said to have been quite popular among Christians before the Council of Nicaea, where it was excluded from canon at the first Christian council of the empire, which is what Nicaea was. And that is no wonder, once we read it, once we read it and see how contrary it is to the idea of empire. But in spite of this official exclusion, it was nevertheless included in the 4th century Codex Sinaiticus and in the 6th century Codex Claromontanus, being placed in each of those codices following the Book of Acts and before the epistles of Paul of Tarsus. 
So they thought it was very important to associate the pastor of Hermas with the work of Paul of Tarsus because the entire last half of the book of Acts is almost exclusively about Paul of Tarsus. And they included this right between Acts and the epistles of Paul. The following is from the edition of the Pastor of Hermas, which is found in the Anti-Nicene Fathers by Robertson Donaldson. The volumes of the early Christian writers, which we have employed throughout this presentation. This is from, and the titles have the, have the number and the book backwards so that my listeners don't think I'm dyslexic. I will read them as they appear in the Anti-Nicene Fathers. This is from Book 3rd, Similitudes, Similitude Ninth, The Great Mysteries in the Building of the Militant and Triumphant Church. Chapter 19. And I quote, because there's an allegory here of seven mountains. From the first mountain, <clears throat> which was black, they that believed are the following, apostates and blasphemers against the Lord, and betrayers of the servants of God. To these, repentance is not open, but death lies before them, and on this account also are they black, for their race is a lawless one. <clears throat> I'm losing... I'm losing my voice, I'm sorry. <clears throat> to these, repentance is not open, but death lies before them, and on this account are they black, for their race is a lawless one. And from the second mountain, which was bare, they who believe are the following, hypocrites and teachers of wickedness, and these, accordingly, are like the former, those black ones, not having any fruits of righteousness. So we see that the shepherd of Hermas didn't think that blacks had any fruits of righteousness. For as their mountain was destitute of fruit, so also such men have a name indeed, but are empty of faith, and there is no fruit of truth in them. They indeed have repentance in their power. If they repent quickly, but if they are slow in doing so, they shall die along with the former. Why, sir, I said, have these repentance but the former not? For their actions are nearly the same. On this account, he said, have these repentance, this is sort of a dialogue, because they did not blaspheme their Lord nor become betrayers of the servants of God. But on account of their desire of possessions, they became hypocritical, and each one taught according to the desires of men that were sinners. But they will suffer a certain punishment, and repentance is before them, because they were not blasphemers or traitors. In our Christian identity opinion, this certainly does represent sound doctrine in the building of the militant and triumphant church, since Christianity is only for white Europeans, and niggers are certainly unredeemable. And any of our white brethren who do not repent, and who have not yet been 
blasphemers or traitors, has certainly better repent soon, or they are going to end up in a lake of fire along with the niggers. All blasphemers and traitors to our race and our God are already headed in that direction. Yahweh God be willing, we shall present the next portion of the series soon and commence with the original sermon by Bertrand Compare, Christianity in the Old Testament. Praise Yahweh the God of Israel. Thank you for listening and good night.